Christianity is this temple. Okay? Um, we can't knock it down. That's not our job. That is not our job. All we can do is point to it and say, it's doomed. That's all we can do. Why are Christians leaving Christianity today on In the Shadow of the Cross? I am Lauren Rosser, and I am here once again with my friends Jim Durkin. Hello. And James Dean. (laughs) (laughs) Michael Harden, I just realized that it said James Dean right when I went to to introduce you. That's funny. New name every week. But same same good theology. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So so a couple weeks ago, um, we actually got a, a, a pretty good response from a um a podcast we did on uh, uh, Christians leaving church and there's been a lot of articles released since then and it got me thinking about um about why Christians are leaving Christianity so we we thought that would be a good uh, a good discussion today is why are Christians leaving Christianity and uh, th- there was even a, a article that came out this week in the Wall Street Journal that my cousin shared uh, why middle aged Americans aren't going back to church so um, that's kind of what got me thinking on this plus a lot of Facebook posts from people who I knew at one time were you know staunch. Christians who now really don't want anything to do with Christianity at all. Um, so we thought this would make an interesting conversation. So I'll just throw it out there and let's just open with just sharing thoughts off the top of our head. Why are Christians leaving Christianity like a game show? Go! <laughs> Durkin! So, so Michael thought I would be the best one to, uh, or at least maybe kick this off and I'm not exactly sure why, because Lauren said middle-aged people, and I'm the oldest one on this panel. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I'm technically the middle-aged guy here. Lauren's the middle-aged guy. (laughs) Do you realize how irrelevant you've just made us? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Carry on. I'm young at heart. I'm 17. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, yeah, my heart's young. It's the rest of me. In, in the old, yeah. Well, by Old Testament standards, you guys are middle age. Yeah, oh, so there, you, there you go. <laughs> it's an interesting subject because uh, uh, does any, I'm not trying to pass the buck, but does anybody know what the stats are right now? I know a few years ago, the uh, Gallup polls or whoever it was uh, said it it was in the millions of people that have left. Yeah, I'm pulling up the article right now to see what's on there. Does does the article cite the Pew Research Institute? Because they're the ones that do the best work on the demographics. Let's see. This one's from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. Interesting. And, and what stats does it give? Let's see. They have a weekly attendance to church and worship service uh, in person or online. And they have uh, what they count as elderly. Is it in 2023? Is it 53%? Yeah. They have baby boomers at 38%. Yeah. They have Gen X all the way down to 28%. Yeah. And millennials at the exact same place at 28%. All right. And they don't have Gen Z on here. Yeah, right. And those are numbers of percents of, of those uh, uh, age groups that are are attending church or have dropped out? Uh, that, that are attending. Are yeah, attending. So, okay. So you have a little over half the elderly, but when you – and then um, – Then it drops really – Yeah, definitely way below on the boomers, all the way down to 38%, which, by the way, that's huge because people can see that yeah they're above the the millennials and the and the gen x but mm-hmm. that's really significant because that's way below half and it was just um man it was just like 10 15 years ago they were at around 50% or slightly below so yeah, well, you, you you go back into the uh, 
decades prior to the turn of the millennium, and you're looking at about a 75% attendance. Yeah, exactly. And and the boomers were seen as they're going to be the ones that are going to, you know, ride yeah. this thing out. That's and for right. that to be down to 38%, to me, that's even more significant than the Gen X being at 28. Because, you know, Gen X have always, we've always been kind of dropouts. <laughs> You know, if you watch The Breakfast Club and stuff like that, you know, um, but but when you look at uh, when you when you look at the boomers, you know, they, they were the ones that, you know, were expected that they're going to still hold some form of tradition. And for them to go that low, that's that says a lot. Think about this for just a second. The elderly, that silent generation, they weren't college goers. The boomers were. OK, yeah, got a liberal arts education at least, right? Yeah, now, they end up doing the family, the white picket fence, two dogs, all that stuff, right? They go through life, and now they're nearing retirement, and they're discovering that whatever part of the Protestant tradition that they're in isn't working for them. Usually, significant events, divorces, deaths. Um, you know, uh, you know, a, a major assault on one's person. These events create distance between us and God. Why would God let this happen? I think the boomers, because of that critical background, could not return to their religious thinking. God has a plan. God has a plan. Because if this is God's plan, God sucks. Right. And I really think that that the 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 enlightenment critique enters into the boomer generation. Um, and so that is part of our ethos. And thus, when it comes to the actual breakdown of, of the Protestant theology, and if this has been going now for 20 something years, you're going to see fewer and fewer people in church. Now here's where this kills the church. The baby boomers are about to shift trillion, seven trillion dollars of wealth down to the next generation. Wow. Normally, normally a piece of that inheritance would be given to a church. So now they're right. all this potential legacy income. Yeah, and, and this is all stuff that uh, Steve Crosby had written an article. I don't know if he wrote the article or if it was something that he shared, but but it was right along the lines of what you were talking about, where um, it, 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 he was referring to the mega churches, talking about they're not aware of the tidal wave that's about to hit them, or they are, and they're just choosing to do nothing about it, That because the amount of money that it takes to keep those things floating, and then you have the, the boomers have been the dominant ones keeping it afloat. Um, because mm-hmm. they have a mentality of just giving because you're supposed to give. Um, right. And then it was talking about how when you hit Gen X and below, they don't have that mentality. When they give, they tend to give to people they know, not to organizations and, and things like that. So their giving patterns are completely different. And, yeah. and so you talk about the money shifting from uh, the, those who are used to attending on a regular basis. And then you get to the, to the Gen X and then the, the millennials and Gen Z, of course um, it, it can, there's, there's not going to be the giving that there's been. So yeah. um, I mean, it, it, and it's not just being a doom and gloom kind of thing. It's just being, um, being pragmatic that unless there was some kind of drastic change, um, those buildings are going to be empty warehouses pretty soon. There's another factor and that's the internet. The boomers, we got we got in uh, on the internet. We were still young enough back in the '90s, you know, to get in on the internet. But the the Gen Xers, Gen Y, the millennials, they've grown up on the internet. You know, they they got watches on their arms that they can talk to Russia and watch movies on, right? I mean, we're yeah. the interconnection. So the availability of knowledge, this this. Uh, web of information, Web 2.0, has given people so many opportunities to think outside the box. If they're listening to things and learning things, they're not just stuck in the old paper era that we were in where we were told which bookstores were good and which bookstores were bad, you know, and we only went to the good bookstores, right? Now you can get on the Internet. You can find everything under the sun. Exactly. No, now, Those are the two phenomena I would observe. 
Yeah, that's really significant, Michael, because, um, I mean, we talk about when you look at the Reformation, how it was the printing press came along and sparked massive change, as we know. Well, the Internet comes along and now people can start engaging theological questions that before were taboo. And they can start hearing, not just hearing nonsense, they can actually hear intelligent thought on these topics. So I think that's kind of, you brought up, it's a really good point because it's kind of the unknown part of this. I mean, it's not the the undiscussed part of this. When when people, oh, it's a tragedy, people are leaving, people are banning. And it's like, well, you know, also it could be that people are starting to think differently and find that they're not in agreement like they used to be with the theologies that they're supposed to adhere to, to be part of these groups. Well, there's, can I throw in one third factor, Jim? I'm sorry. Sure. The last factor is this. And there are many impulses to this. By the end of the 20th century, we were watching the death of the only kind of God we as a species have known for 10, 15,000 years. We're watching the death of the big sky God. The big lawmaker in the universe, you know, the, okay, whether deist or, or Calvinist, it doesn't matter. We're getting rid of the big sky god right now. And I think that's a factor in the um, in, in why people are leaving church. The big sky god just doesn't work anymore. Now, if we knew the father, the father, <laughs> the father's active all the time everywhere. But the, the father is not the big sky god, and the big sky god is a real bad father <laughs> right well there's something i've, I've thought of uh or thought about for 20 or so years anyhow and it has to do with um a kind of a principle that you you see woven through scripture on occasion and it's it's the principle of sowing and reaping it's the principle of planting seed into the ground and and that seed bearing fruit and whatever. And the baby boom generation was a rebellious generation. No. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I wasn't even here, and I know that. <laughs> Almost cut my hair happened just the other day. <laughs> you, th- you think about it, the anti-disestablishmentarianism. Yes. yes. You know, that, that we bought into. And yeah. uh, so... Are universities, in order to hold on to that generation, also begin to change? Curriculums yeah. begin to change, and yeah. uh, it became more humanitarian. It became more uh, justice issues, and because that's what we were, uh, our generation was crying out for. It's yeah. we want. We want an end to apartheid. We want a justice for all. We want, we want an end you know, war. and we want an end to this, you know, <laughs> war, uh, yeah. you know, and and unjust war. And, and it doesn't make sense why we're even over there, you know. <laughs> uh, and and um, so when a portion of that generation began to experience. Uh, what we call revival or a move of God or whatever we want to put on that called the Jesus people movement. Even though, because it's all that we had, most of that generation that it, that were part or swept up in that movement went to establish churches for a season. The pastor uh was willing to kind of change. It's like, oh, I see, I've got a different congregation here. You know, there was a song back then that was real popular, you know, long hairs, short hairs, coats and ties, you know. Some would show up in, in you know, shorts and flip-flops and be sitting next to somebody, you know, in, in their three-piece suit, you know. And it's like, whoa. We just love everybody. You know, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. Love, sweet love. <laughs> you know? And it was it was a great time, but it was unsustainable. And then over time, bit by bit, those pastors began to revert back to what their roots were. That's right. And we kind of just 
fallen. Oh, well, that's the pastor. He must know or whatever. And so we followed that and we tried to get into, you know, church doctrine and and something called the discipleship movement and you know where you had to submit to somebody who was submitted to somebody who was submitted to the grand poobah you know and so you had all that okay we've had 40 plus years of that and coming up short just saying Number one, this isn't the DNA of my, the roots of my youth that said that establishment is not good. You know, man's, man's establishment is not good. And with that, we see that the church, if you will, is really more man's idea than anything God talked about, uh, anything Jesus talked about. And we're like, okay, I'm 73. And I'm looking and I'm saying, when I was 23, I was ready to take on the world and, and bring change. Right. Here I am 50 years later, and I've just been sitting in a, you know, on a bench or a, a really nice, comfortable chair because the church said people need nice chairs instead of pews or whatever, but I'm just sitting here, and I've been doing this for 50 years, and I haven't done one thing to change the world, and all of a sudden it's like, you know, I'm no longer going with the devil I know is better than the devil I don't. I'm getting out of this thing. And I'm going to find my own way. And it's a scary thing to be out on your own. And unfortunately, when you overthrow the establishment, when, when that becomes the seed of, of, of your action to overthrow the whole establishment for a season of time. And, and I think there's going to be a lot of people that aren't going to return for a season of time. You wonder if maybe everything connected with it. And I, I appreciate what you're saying, Michael, certainly the sky God, uh, God never uh, intended us to relegate him to, the third heaven where we can't approach or the eighth heaven or whatever number you put on it. And, uh, you know, dwells in a realm that no man can approach. And, and we look at all that stuff and we say, man, that isn't what I signed up for. Right. You know, I, I signed up and, and I think even that, uh, needs to be challenged, but I signed up for a personal relationship with a real living God. I didn't sign up for religion. I didn't sign up to sit on the pew of the same church and listen to the same man over and over and over again tell me the same doctrine that I already signed on the bottom line for 50 <laughs> years ago. And, you know, and, 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 to argue with all my other friends who are in some other box, believing some other doctrine, and and then leave this earth, and what in the world have I done with my life? And I, I think there's I think there's a sense of all us gray hairs wanting to kind of get back to some of the philosophy that we believed in when we were, you know. Bear, I mean, barely dry behind the ears. And you, you, you have said four really important things, Jim. I mean, yeah. that was fantastic. And I, yeah. I, I want to enumerate them because, and, and then I'll add my spin to them, but, but um, I want to enumerate them. The other side of that is our kids and our grandkids. Our kids for the most part, the, the children of the baby boom generation were born and their formative years 
were when we were still in what the world called our rebellious years. Yeah. So what we put into them was a a um, sense of challenge everything. Including right? us. <laughs> Including us. Oh, yeah. So they did. That was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, but, uh, y- you know, um, and, 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 so what did they do when they hit their university years? Right. They challenged everything. They sure did. And Michael, you were absolutely, uh, you know, spot on. Uh, they have the internet. Yeah. So if at some point, well, not if, at some point in time, we came back, our generation comes back, and we become the establishment. Yeah. All right? But our, children, but our children and our grandchildren's generation listen to us trying to sell the things that when they were young in their formative years, we were telling them is wrong and needs to be overthrown, and, and now we're trying to sell it. Yeah, no. And they're not buying. No, they're One not. of the reasons they're not buying is, is exactly what you said, because they have the Internet. Yeah. Andy Stanley said in in his book, uh, what is it? Irresistible. It's uh, it's something I can't remember the name of it. I love I love the book. Okay. He said he said basically he said um, this is the first generation that knows what the Bible has to say on any given subject without ever having owned or read the Bible. That's a fascinating thought, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So, so can I come to my four points? Yes. Now, this goes back to what you said. Um, you talked about sowing and reaping. I think people uh, in the in the older religious traditions, uh, again, they have this concept of sowing and reaping. If you sow, you do good. You okay, and they lived within that hermeneutic from the Book of Deuteronomy: do this and live. And live. You yeah. and you will die. Okay. So the consequences were always in terms of their behavior, right? Now we know Jesus comes along and blows that out of the sky when he says the Father makes it the sunshine on evil and good, rain to fall on just and unjust. The Father doesn't discriminate, right? God does, but the Father doesn't. Or God concepts do, but the Father doesn't. On the other hand, and I think this is this is something that is more and more in my field of vision. It's it the what the church has done with the, the notion of consequences is they've moralized it and and, and legalized it. And it's awful. Nevertheless, there is kind of a karma in the universe. Justice does come, you know. Um, and I'm not thinking necessarily in terms of an Eastern religion. I'm just thinking of Dr. King, who says the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. You know, I, I, I change that. I say the moral arc of the universe bends towards mercy, but that includes justice. But at any rate, there are consequences. The natural world, there are consequences. You, you get, you, you know, you know, uh, not to eat a poisonous plant. You eat it, it will affect you, Right. There are consequences. So I, I want to acknowledge that, but I would like to acknowledge it outside of that moral framework that Christianity's put it in. And I thought that was very important. Second, you talked about how we submitted. And God, when the shepherding movement came in, that was the most God-awful thing, but we all thought it was God. It was a work of God, you know. I think one thing we boomers have learned, because we're rebels, you know, is that we could not handle that kind of an authoritarian, Calvinistic, Augustinian, sky god version of Jesus. It didn't look like Jesus. It didn't pass the smell test. Jesus, who was not manipulative, who was not domineering. And the Jesus movement, I think, not only did it give us the rebellion piece, but it gave us the Jesus piece so we could never separate them. You know what I mean? Third point, the establishment. The establishment is the temple. Christianity is this temple. Okay? Um, 
We can't knock it down. That's not our job. That is not our job. All we can do is point to it and say it's doomed. That's all we can do, you know. And the and the other the other thing we can do is say the father will do whatever the father wants to do. And I don't mean God's doing a new work stuff. I mean the father will bring out of that chaos order. He'll bring out of the darkness that's coming light. He will. There will. I really do think it'll be like Carol Wimmer says. It'll be that network, and because of the internet, where we we can go to church twenty four hours a day on our on our watch or our phone because we're gathering with people that love Jesus. You know what I mean? So these possibilities, or if if we're getting Google eyeglass land, you know, we can all kind of. Wherever you know what I'm saying, okay. Yeah. Well, the the establishment Christianity is a, is a temple, and this is the thing that Christians don't get. They keep trying to go. They keep trying to say this temple thing called Christianity. We have to have the sacrificial religion. We have to have this place where we can do sacrifice. We can justify sacrifice. All of the logic that goes with sacrificial thinking. And so when Jim talked about how we were rebelling, what, what is it that we're rebelling? Well, it's that Jesus movement piece that's saying nonviolence is more powerful than violence. Love is more powerful than hate, you know. Um, and finally, our generation, Jim, you and I, we were told we could do anything we wanted. We were going to have it better than our parents. And what they really did was they gave us a Messiah complex, so my mother, growing up, she said, you can be president of the United States. And she kept saying that to me, right? And then I got into the church, and the church said, you know, you can be the next Carl Bart or the next Jim Baker or the next charismatic Bill Johnson or whatever. You can be, you can be, you can be, you can be, right? And all they did was take that Messiah complex in my ego and put it on steroids. And then when that didn't happen, it was like, did, did God stop using me? Did the father no longer care? You know, and, and the, the shift takes place. So we're not called to change the world. That was a lie. We were lied to. We're not called to change the world. We are called to change ourselves and be a light to the world. We are called to only, I can only change myself and be a light and a model to others. Those are my four points. I thought were brilliant. Yeah, Jim, you also sparked a whole lot of thoughts in me. I was jotting notes down as you were talking because it, it really got my wheels turning here. First of all, uh, I wanted to say first, it, it was funny. I, I saw this meme this week where somebody showed kids uh, pictures of kids from the 1950s, you know, walking all nice with mom and dad. And it said, and it said uh, uh, why were kids in the 50s so much more respectful than kids today? And I thought, oh, finish the story. They could have got your butt blistered if you did. Well, and, and also, who are those kids going to be in the 1960s? My, my mother and father had this wooden paddle, and, and they had drilled holes in it. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. The paddle, they had drilled the holes in it. And that oh, thing, yeah. If you got your three wax on, oh, man, it was like... Waterboard, please don't hit me. Exactly, but but the you finish the story. It's those those are the kids who are going to be the the hippies in the sixties. So it's like, oh yeah, they're all respectful. Then give them, you know, give them a few more years. You're gonna you're gonna see. You know, that's just a a nice little convenient meme that's painting a false picture. Um, It's really. Did you ever see the movie Flashback with Dennis Hopper and Kiefer? Oh, that's a great Mm -hmm. movie. It's a great movie. Do you remember at the very, very end when they're talking, you know, at the bookstore and Kiefer Sutherland asked him if he's going to get on a bike and he looks at him and he says, rebellion is a young man's game. Yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's great. Uh, it, it's funny because I remembered some articles I had read when you guys were sharing that um, they talked about how the boomers, you guys were talking about the boomers having that cause, that mission, that, you know, that purpose of we're here to change the world. And, and uh, it's interesting because studies found millennials have that same mentality. They very much are, are of the, the similarities to the boomers, which is funny why there's all the fights between the boomers and the millennials, because they have both have that like sense of, well, at least when the boomers were younger, had that sense of go out and change the world. What's interesting though, and, and most of the boomers are the parents of the millennials. Um, the parents of Gen X, my generation, 
were either the very older boomers or they were mostly the the people who were teenagers in the fifties, not in the not in the sixties. Um, so that was our big thing in in high school. We would be talking about, oh, our parents are out of it because they're from the fifties, man. You know, so so we we were just in a different mentality. But the thing with Gen X they that's were really square, Jim, the squares. They were the squares. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> right. So square, the, the thing that's so different though with my generation from your generation is that my generation, um, first of all, they, they're a much smaller generation. You know, yeah. you're called the baby boomers for a very good reason. It was a big generation. And the millennials are also an enormous generation. Gen yeah. X is kind of, we have this reputation of being the forgotten generation because right. we're right in the right. middle. Um, right. our, our big heroes are the guys who are kind of all thrown aside like Conan O'Brien. You know, he, he's he's a Gen Xer. He was our guy, you know, and uh, and he was he was such a picture of my generation where he was ready to take the Tonight Show. This is it. This is our moment. We're finally going to have a Gen Xer, you know, on the Tonight Show. He had it for two weeks and then they throw him aside and we're just like and everybody in my generation was going, is that not the exact picture of our generation? You know, because we were the kids who. Our parents, we were the latchkey kids. Our parents would basically say, go out until it's dark and then come home. You know, get outside <laughs> and play. And just when the lights come on, come home. Right. Um, so we have a, um, we are not a mission-centered generation. We don't have that sense of let's go out and change the world. If We're actually best personified as survivalists. Where, your question? Yeah. I'm going to interrupt. You said we're, we're not out there to change the world. Is it because you're literally watching the world change around you every year? So fast? That's exactly it. That's exa a good point because um, we went from having the analog world and no and no technology, no internet, nothing like that, to Atari, to computers, to uh -huh. cell phones. Uh -huh. So we've we've been like you guys on the side where there was no technology, and we're part of the transition into all of that. So we lived in a constant state of change, um, and then there was a. Uh, there was just a, like I, I would say like kind of the if you were to pick like a character in a movie that really pictures this generation, it's Wolverine, you know, the survivor, you know, yeah. the loner, the yeah. guy who's, you know, going to going to just do his own thing. And so, of course, that very much doesn't play into what goes on in, in the mentality in so many churches where it's like we're on a mission to change the world. We're all here to come together and, and do something together. And most most Gen Xers, it's like, I'm not saying this is right. I'm just saying this is the mentality is basically leave me alone. Let me do my thing, you know, and uh, the world is changing all around me. I'm not happy with a lot of the things that are happening, whichever side of the aisle they're on. It's I'm not happy with what's happening. Just leave me alone. Let me do my thing. Um, and so they don't have a, um, a group mentality of joining together for a cause. It's, I just want to survive this. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very different mindset. So the approaches even that churches use um, tend to have kind of that group go out and reach a generation and, and fight for the cause mentality. And that's just not inside the Gen Xer. If you want somebody to lead something like that, get a boomer, get a millennial. Um, a Gen Xer is is not going to rally behind something like that. Um, they definitely are already wired for, like I even mentioned earlier, the the Breakfast Club, um, Pretty in Pink, movies like that were all kind of there. The, the whole Brat Pack movies were yeah. were the mo movies that really pictured my generation. If you notice, it's all small groups. And so really the mentality of, of my generation is give me a handful of close friends mm -hmm. and I'm good. And, and so any, any gathering in the body of Christ that grasps that, if you're trying to build a giant organization, you are not going to grab Gen X. Gen X is just not in that mentality. But if you're like, let's, let's have small community. Let's, let's have, mm -hmm. let's be friends together. They're mm -hmm. in. You know, they're, they're, they're okay with that. And, and again, it's that thing we talked about earlier. Of they don't give to things that are impersonal. Um, they give to things that are personal. I don't want to give to some faceless giant organization, but I'll give to my friend who needs something. Right. Or I'll give to this poor person that I know, or this person I know who runs an organization helping the poor. I'll give right. to him, right. but I won't give to this nameless, faceless organization. So right. just a very different mentality than, than you have from the boomers. Right. I, th I think you're hitting on something. Uh, you're you're focusing on your generation, but but I think you're hitting on something that's very much in the heart of uh, of father, and that's community. 
Uh, church, if you will, uh, the organization never created community. The the uh, what Michael talked about, uh, uh, you know, about the guy who's out there going to win the world, you know, the guy who's going to be the next Billy Graham, you know, or whatever. Um, he knows nothing about community. He's not interested in community. But the the person who really begins to understand, and, and I, I know this is not the uh, build-up Stephen Crosby's ministry, but he has, a lot, he has a lot to say that I agree with, and I'm sure you do too, Lauren. But, you know, this personal Lord and Savior, my personal God, my personal salvation, my personal is, is it's, it's not scriptural and it's not sustainable. No. And that's very much a weakness in my generation is that personal Jesus. Cause again, I want to go be by myself, leave me alone, give me my Jesus. I'm good. But if, if, if you say then the opposite of that, is the organization, I hear what you're saying. Your generation is saying, forget that. I don't want to be a part of, I'm not signing up for a new organization. But if yeah, you yeah. talk about community, relationship with, like you're saying, two, three other people, eight, ten other people that are truly a community, if that community, however small or large it is, if that community truly represents Jesus, truly represents the love that we're told to have, the uh, nonviolence, the, the laying down your life for each other, whatever, people begin to observe that and begin to say, and, and our goal is not to change the world. I, I really honestly do believe that. Uh, you know, this idea that we're going to take over, you know, all seven mountains and we're going to run it and we're going to control it and then we're going to show that we brought in the kingdom of God so misses the point. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I'll be, I'll be nice on how I say that. Uh, but, it, it, you know, it's... And yet, that first generation, you know, they evangelized the whole world, but they did it not by passing out chick tracks and, and, you know, four spiritual laws. They did it by beginning to love each other. And yet, having said that, they may have evangelized the whole world, but they didn't, they didn't convert Rome. No. You know, yeah. one of the apostles didn't get appointed as the, you know, as as the new, you know, head of the Roman Empire. Nero says, I'll step down and let you take over, you know. It's like, it, that, that just didn't happen. Christian uh, fan fiction. <laughs> but what, did, what did happen is community happened yeah and and community of people who really did like each other who really became what the bible describes as living stones that were built together yeah. and that became the habitation of the lord and and i think until we uh get back to that uh so i'm i'm neither for the establishment nor am I for the internet church, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, it's, it's like, I'm, I'm for the community, whatever that looks like. And, exactly. You know, the connections that God puts together. So, and I think so, every generation, uh, I think every generation would be able to embrace that. I, I think you, okay. So there's three things you brought up this last time I got to bring uh, Bear. One is, um, and again, the three points being phenomenal, um, but I have to do my riffing. The first one is, is, is 
the definition of person in the word personal relationship. What is a person, right? Now, again, we tend to think of a person as an individual with an ego. And so it's my ego and Jesus' ego meeting up. That's my personal relationship. I walk with him and I talk with him in the garden alone and I've got this ego thing going with him. Okay, that is not reality. If Gerard is correct and we are interdividual, what that means is I don't exist. You don't exist as individuals. We only exist in relationship. There's only the Michael Lauren, the Michael Jim relationship. That's real. There's no Michael Harden apart from his relationship. I don't exist apart from my relationships. So I am my relationships. What Now, that's going to obviously factor into the community concept later, right? But if we take the definition of person and we make it interdividual rather than enlightenment, Cartesian, I think, therefore, I am, I'm this, you know, okay? If we shift that to personal relationship now, the problem for the for the evangelicals is that they have to acknowledge that their relationship as a as a person. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Their their concept of themselves as a person and Jesus as a person doesn't work. It's the relationship that's important. It's that re, it's that mediated. It's mediated between the two people, right? And, and this means that all relationships are mediated. In this, now we we can just think right back to Scripture. There's one mediator. There's one who mediates in all of our relationships, in all of them. There's that, okay? So even here, I mean, if if, if we're not Jesus people, then it's, it's he, he doesn't necessarily be, he's not necessarily visible there, but doesn't mean he's not working. But here... He's working. And that's how the two two here, one, two, one, two, right? You and me, Lauren, you and me, Jim. We actually become more than three. We become four because mm-hmm. Jesus he says, I'm there in your midst, right? That's oh, wow. community. Yeah. And now to have a personal relationship with Jesus doesn't mean I get to walk around feeling like he's my best friend, but I wonder why he never does anything in my life. And did I piss him off today? And what have I done wrong? And hmm, where did he go? And oh, I feel good. Happy clappy time. Okay, now, oh, where's Jesus? You know, you know, all the mood swings that go with evangelicalism, right? Um, but if we do it interpersonally, interdividually, now the most important thing is the health of the relationship. Yes. Not the health of the ego. Yeah. I, I, that's really good. That's really good. That's another one of those say law, you know, moments. Um, it's, it's really good because it, it <laughs> makes you think one about people's minds, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Well, because well, you know, it, it, imagine if our whole thinking in, in Christianity shifted away from, I'm going to this meeting to try and feel Jesus or try and, you know, get something out of that or, or, you know, something from the sermon or whatever, instead of, I'm going to put my priority or instead of maybe even building this organization or whatever, trying to make things better. What if it shifted to, I'm going to put that energy into building my relationships with the people around me and tending to those, tending to those relationships. What if that became my highest, my absolute, I mean, picture taking all that energy that goes into all the Christian service and Christian work and everything. And what if I put that as my number one priority is main, maintaining those relationships with my brothers and sisters in Christ to make sure they are at the highest level possible, the greatest level of love they could possibly be. Knowing, knowing that it is neither my task, responsibility, or anything else to change them. I can only change myself. Exactly. And that's a key point. point. Valid point. Yes. It's, it's what, how do I need the spirit working in me? How, how, what do I need to do to change my mentality so I can love them better? And, and I'm not the cause of friction in the relationship. Yeah. Well, additionally, Lauren, what if I put as much uh, emphasis or um, uh, I don't like the word work, but I think you know what I'm trying to say. (laughs) You're retired. I don't like work. Uh, (laughs) In, in those interpersonal relationships, as I do right now in my personal relationship with God, 
Mm-hmm. So on my bad days, I'm like, what did I do wrong? It's like, oh, I got to call so-and-so and have them, you know, counsel me or pastor so-and-so or, or you know, it's like, oh, a friend of mine recommended a book to me. Maybe I better read that book. Maybe that'll help me figure out what's going on. And, and we do all this, all these spiritual gymnastics to uh you know, to feel better, to, you know, to to bolster my personal relationship. And, and what if we put that same effort into interpersonal relationships? That, that's uh, what dying, dying of thirst on the banks of a river is about. I mean, you really just summarized your book right there. You know? it, really, it really is. It's what the whole book is about. And, 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 and yet... You know, somebody asked me uh, the other day that's thinking about writing a book, well, how long did it take you to write that book? And I said, about 25 years. Yeah. You know, because I had to live it. Yeah. Right. You know, <laughs> and, you know, it's 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 interesting because um, learning that interpersonal relationships that aren't about me trying to help Michael be a better person. Good luck. You know? uh, well, yeah, I, well, yeah, exactly. I gave up on that before I met you. You know, but, you know, that personal, going back to that personal relationship mentality, it fosters that. It fosters the I'm going to fix you mentality. Yeah. So I enter into every relationship, and it's like I, I kind of go into my prayer closet, if, if that's what I have going on, and I'm like, Lord, you know, why did you bring Lauren into my life? <laughs> oh, I know. Okay. You brought Lauren into my life to help him with and then fill in the blank. There's a, so, <laughs> there's a lot of blanks there. There's a lot of blanks. And, and, and darkness and foreboding coming. <laughs> right. <laughs> so every time we get together, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I've got these things that I need to help Lauren with. So I wonder which one of them is going to come up in this conversation. <laughs> in, instead of, you know, okay, uh, point taken. So I just, uh, yeah, if we could understand, if we could learn what community is supposed, and, and I'm going to take it all the way back to the Jesus people movement. We honestly thought when, you know, I, I lived communally for several years. We yes, honestly so thought we were going to do that. We were going to accomplish it. We, we were going to do it forever. We were going to do it forever. And, and you know, I uh, helped to organize uh, gatherings from time to time of old Jesus people. And, and we have anywhere from two to 300 people get together. Uh, we're still really good friends uh, on Facebook and in, in, in person. Um, there are several of my generation that I knew back at the Lighthouse Ranch where I, I lived oh, yeah. uh, that that own uh, motorhomes, and they go all around the country just visiting people. I'm, I'm waiting for an invitation to join that gathering. <laughs> well, the next one's probably going to be in June of uh, 2024 in the Seattle area. So. Well, you tell me, and I'll fly there and make trouble. I'd, lo- I'd love to have you fly there. I don't know about trouble. Any, <laughs> any, anyhow, uh, the the point being that we thought not communal but community was going yeah. to last forever. Yeah. And then what you know, and I, I can blame it on discipleship. I can blame it on whatever. There's lots of things. But but until we can learn to get back to community, where we are, I love Facebook. I love my friends that I knew from 50 years ago. But I, I don't live with them. Right. 
I live with a whole lot of other people right here in Eureka, California, you know, that I have the I have the opportunity and the challenge to become interpersonal with them. Yeah. And I, I think that's the goal. And I think that's I think that speaks to what we're talking about today. The reason why the established church is seeing a huge exodus is because the challenge has always been before them to live up to the words that they use. You know, we use that we throw that word family around like yeah, you know, like it's green jello at the uh, potluck, you know. It's like but we don't know anything about family or we know about dysfunctional family. Well, <laughs> yeah, we got that. All. We got that in spades. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately. It's interesting because as you were talking about your your experience growing up in Christianity and the change you saw in the community you saw, I, I was just reflecting on mine on how Gen X, it was so the opposite um, in the sense that for us, there weren't a lot of people our age who went to church. Hmm. And so we we had a mentality that we're kind of the, the few you know, and, and we were, we would tended to be tight in our youth groups. Mm-hmm. Um, you, it, we, we tended to be really close friends because there weren't a lot of us who were following Jesus. I mean, really had a heart after God who were in, who, who were going to church and in youth group and stuff. So, you know, most churches had a youth group of like 12 kids and that was about it. And then you'd go to college and then a bunch of them would drop off and have nothing to do with God anymore. And so you became even a, 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 a slimmer number. You know, unless you had a college career group or something like that. Some we churches went to that. meetings. Yeah, exactly. So it's just interesting because it was like we were kind of on the other end of the whole Jesus people movement that you were talking about, Jim, where you thought it would go forever and it's clearly not. We were on the clearly not part, you know, where we came into the scene. We, we saw the residue from it. You know, we saw Calvary Chapel across town. We saw, heard the bands around, you know, and stuff like that. But we, uh, sadly, I think a big part of my generation became part of that, uh, that let's build up the church in a material way and, you know, through showmanship and stuff, because the whole Christian rock thing and all that really took off with my generation. So it was like, let's, you know, let's turn to the show. But then we burned out on that real quick. Let me throw in another thing. We're talking about the big change. Think about this. Christianity for the first 1500 years, really, is centered around an altar. Then pulpit. Reformation period. Uh Then Jesus movement and beyond is a stage. Okay. We go to church to get entertained. Okay. It's a narcissistic experience, right? I think that's what's driving people away because I think, and here's what's interesting. The people that are leaving the evangelical tradition are going into the a lot of, the, at least on my Facebook friends, but they're heading toward the Orthodox Church or a, a Lutheran or an Episcopal Church. They're looking for smells and bells. They're looking for the altar again. Uh-huh. You know, they're looking for that steady heartbeat. You know, that that repetition that brings comfort. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah, I think you're. I think you're exactly right because I've I've seen that and experienced that where it's like you want back to simplicity. Mm. You know, it's like it's like I don't want the hoopla anymore. I don't right. want the 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 big show. I I want yeah. I want the simple prayers. I want the I, I want the scriptures just read. I don't want a sermon about the scriptures. I, I want yeah. I want to just hear the scriptures. Well, there's a there's a very different aesthetic in mass. Then there is an charismatic worship service. You know, it's a very different aesthetic, and it takes a lot. You, you you really have to go through the get rid of all the bad theology I learned in evangelicalism stuff first. Then when you head back into it, the aesthetic is something that's appealing. You yeah, stained glass, the banners, the even the types of music. You know, I know that mm-hmm. I know that the churches mm-hmm. they're coming to the whole praise chorus thing. You know, but 
but at least there's a humility about it. It's not a stage. It's not worship leaders. It's not Justin Bieber's my best friend. I'm with Hillsong nonsense. You know, look at me. I'm the cool pastor, man. I wear jeans, right? No, 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 no. All that celebrity. The, the people are getting sick and tired of celebrities. Let me put it this way. And celebrity pastors, okay, is what they realize is these fools don't practice the gospel. They just don't. And I think, Dirk, earlier you said this. It's a good place for us to, I'm not timing us, but when you don't practice what you preach, people see through it, they rebel against it, and they walk away. Yeah. I, I remember when uh, some of the early Jesus people leaders, uh, Jack Sparks and, oh, Jack and Sparks, uh, yeah, sure. Dwayne, Dwayne Peterson and John Michael mm-hmm. Talbot, uh, How it's embrace, yeah, embrace the Orthodox Church. Yeah. And it was like, what? They're backsliding, <laughs> you know, and and now here, fifty years later, it's like, oh, I get it. Okay, they saw something, uh, they saw through something in one in one way, in another way, they saw, and I think that um, uh, the altar, we we've spoken about that, we've spoken about the Eucharist and and uh, things, but the altar represented something mm-hmm. yes. that. Um, we we just do not understand. As a matter of fact, most most churches today talk about uh, symbolism. You know, uh, you know the the wafer and the uh, you know and the and the grape juice. You know, is a symbol of something as as opposed to real presence or you know. And and the altar had an understanding, yeah. and in. Uh, in the Eucharist uh, is that four-part harmony that you're talking about, Michael, earlier. In mm-hmm. the Eucharist is mm-hmm. the community yes. of, of, of believers right. that come together around the, the broken body and the blood of Christ, and he himself is in the midst of that. And and there's no way to get away from that. So the further we get away from that into, you know, you know, okay. So if, if, if you don't have unleavened bread, you know, uh, you know, nacho chips are good enough. And if you don't have grape juice, well, you know, you know, pomegranate juice is fine or apple juice or whatever or water whatever you got because it's all just a symbol that you know you, what you lose the everything the whole message of it amen and amen. the rea- and and it isn't just a message it's a reality it's a living vital reality it's an experience we need and, to pick this up again next week yeah right here. yeah uh, yeah, that's probably not a good bad bad idea. The Eucharist, in light of the demographic shift and why why people are heading toward these liturgical traditions and the value they bring, you know, that's yeah. perfect. Yeah. Uh, all right. So yeah, Jesus movement in the Jesus movement, we were leaving the ritualistic churches. We we wanted yes. freedom. Right. Yeah, and, and, and that's why I think Jack Sparks was the first one. Oh, he we went back to the Apostolic Fathers. Remember, he was we couldn't under we couldn't fathers. understand it. It's like this: no. why would he do that? I know. Why would he abandon us? Well, <laughs> at Church in the Park, we we were very comfortable with Jack's work because I liked Jack's work, and I grew up Catholic, and so yeah. I could mediate okay. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was love. I like Jack's stuff. Yeah, really I good conversation. I need to put a plug in. We brought up Johnny Mike's name earlier, John Michael Talbot. Yeah. His earliest albums from The Lord's Supper, Come to the Quiet, Heart of the Shepherd, The Troubadour of the King. Yeah. You know, those albums still bring me a solace that nothing else does, and it doesn't mm-hmm. even come close mm-hmm. to the best of what Hillsong has to offer. Yeah. 
I, I thought whatever you know Johnny Mike did, and, but, but before he kind of shifted his thing from encouragement to prophecy, um, yeah. and everything changed. But that those early albums of his still, even after what fifty years, yeah, are incredibly. They're still part of my world. So I just I want to play them as well and, and yeah. say thank you very much. Yeah, because I, I love the the ones where he just basically straight out sings the scriptures. Yeah, and then mm-hmm. later, you know, we got Wendy Francisco as part of the backup. Wendy and Mary are the backup singers, like on Troubadour of the King and and he, the Healer of My Soul song, and a lot of those. So if you like Wendy Francisco, why well, you get to go enjoy her vocals there too. Oh yeah, very cool. All right, guys. Well, this has been a great conversation, which we'll pick up next week. Um, Jim, uh, Michael mentioned your book. Where could people find it? On Amazon. On my bookshelf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, mine too. <laughs> and uh, and also, you could find Michael's book on my bookshelf, and uh, and my uh, and his videos on my uh, computer screen. But uh, but Michael, where can people get your stuff? Uh, Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> you drew a blank. I wish everyone could see he was struggling to. Uh, what, what's that company? I, I knew it was again? a river. I knew it was a river. <laughs> Kmart, Walmart. Uh, what, what is it? <laughs> all right, guys. Uh, everyone, thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you all again next week.